escape pod. 182. October 31st, 2008. Today's story, The Story of the Late Mr. L. Vesham, by H.G. Wells. Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. This is our Halloween episode, celebrating that time of year which once meant the harvest and the coming of winter darkness, of closeness to death and obeisance to the terrifying mysteries beyond the firelight. Now we buy costumes off the shelf and observe a candy entitlement for our kids. It's the same thing, really, if you consider that... Okay, no it isn't. But we do have a tradition here. Scary stories on Halloween week. And this year, we're going a bit back to bring you a creepy science fiction story. 112 years back, to be precise. We present the first ever public domain story on Escape Pod. The story of the late Mr. Elvisham, by Herbert George Wells. Mr. Wells lived in England and died in 1946. His life was fascinating and too complex to go into here. His work partially defined the genre of science fiction, with novels like The Time Machine, The War of the Worlds, The Invisible Man. He also wrote a lot of nonfiction, some adventure stories, some pure fantasy. His story, The Magic Shop, is one of my favorites. And a good bit of straight-up ghost stories and horror. This story was first published in 1896. I was unable to find the market. The story is read for us, of course, by Alistair Stewart, host of our sister podcast, Pseudopod, one of the leading markets in horror fiction today. I realize that anything I say in praise of Pseudopod could be taken with a grain of salt, but Ben Phillips' story selections and Al's outros have really made a work of art out of horror story presentation. I really admire what they're doing, and they're upping their game every week. Check them out at pseudopod.org. So, be wary of unsolicited offers from rich strangers... I have a story for you, and I promise you... Nah, I can't pull that off. It's story time. The Story of the Late Mr. Elvisham by H.G. Wells I set this story down not expecting it will be believed, but if possible, to prepare a way of escape for the next victim. He, perhaps, may profit by my misfortune. My own case... I know is hopeless, and I am now in some measure prepared to meet my fate. My name is Edward George Eden. I was born at Trentham, in Staffordshire, my father being employed in the gardens there. I lost my mother when I was three years old, and my father when I was five. My uncle, George Eden, then adopting me as his own son. He was a single man, self-educated, and well known in Birmingham as an enterprising journalist. He educated me generously, fired my ambition to succeed in the world, and at his death, which happened four years ago, left me his entire fortune, a matter of about five hundred pounds, after all outgoing charges were paid. I was then eighteen. He advised me, in his will, to expend the money in completing my education. I had already chosen the profession of medicine, and through his posthumous generosity and my good fortune in a scholarship competition, I became a medical student at University College London. At the time of the beginning of my story, I lodged at 11A University Street, in a little upper room, very shabbily furnished and draughty, overlooking the back of Schoolbred's premises. I used this little room both to live in and sleep in, because I was anxious to eke out my means to the very last shillingsworth. 
I was taking a pair of shoes to be mended at a shop in the Tottenham Court Road when I first encountered the little old man with the yellow face, with whom my life has now become so inextricably entangled. He was standing on the curb and staring at the number on the door in a doubtful way as I opened it. His eyes, they were dull grey eyes and reddish under the rims, fell to my face, and his countenance immediately assumed an expression of corrugated amiability. "'You come,' he said, apt to the moment. "'I had forgotten the number of your house. "'How do you do, Mr. Eden?' "'I was a little astonished at his familiar address, "'for I had never set eyes on the man before. "'I was a little annoyed, too, "'at his catching me with my boots under my arm. "'He noticed my lack of cordiality. "'Wonder who the deuce I am, eh? "'A friend, let me assure you. "'I have seen you before, though you haven't seen me. "'Is there anywhere where I can talk to you?' I hesitated. The shabbiness of my room upstairs was not a matter for every stranger. Perhaps, said I, we might walk down the street. I'm unfortunately prevented. My gesture explained the sentence before I had spoken it. The very thing, he said, and faced this way, and then that. The street. Which way shall we go? I slipped my boots down in the passage. Look here, he said abruptly. This business of mine is a rigmarole. Come and lunch with me, Mr. Eden. I'm an old man, a very old man, and not good at explanations. And what with my pipping voice and the clatter of the traffic, he laid a persuasive, skinny hand that trembled a little upon my arm. I was not so old that an old man might not treat me to a lunch. Yet, at the same time, I was not altogether pleased by this abrupt invitation. I had rather, I began, but I had rather, he said, catching me up, and a certain civility is surely due to my grey hairs. And so I consented, and went with him. He took me to Blavitsky's. I had to walk slowly to accommodate myself to his paces, and over such a lunch as I had never tasted before, he fended off my leading question, and I took a better note of his appearance. His clean-shaven face was lean and wrinkled, his shriveled lips fell over a set of false teeth, and his white hair was thin and rather long. He seemed small to me, though, indeed, most people seemed small to me, and his shoulders were rounded and bent. And watching him, I could not help but observe that he, too, was taking note of me, running his eyes, with a curious touch of greed in them, over me from my broad shoulders to my sun-tanned hands, and up to my freckled face again. "'And now,' said he, as we lit our cigarettes, "'I must tell you of the business in hand. I must tell you, then, that I am an old man, a very old man.' He paused momentarily. "'And it happens that I have money that I must presently be leaving, and never a child have I to leave it to.' I thought of the confidence trick, and resolved I would be on the alert for the vestiges of my five hundred pounds. He proceeded to enlarge on his loneliness, and the trouble he had to find a proper disposition of his money. "'I have weighed this plan, and that plan, charities, institutions, and scholarships, and libraries, and I have come to this conclusion at last.' He fixed his eyes on my face. "'that I will find some young fellow, ambitious, pure-minded, and poor, "'healthy in body and healthy in mind, and, in short, make him my heir. "'Give him all that I have,' he repeated. "'Give him all that I have, "'so that he will suddenly be lifted out of all the trouble and struggle "'in which his sympathies have been educated to freedom and influence.' I tried to seem disinterested, with a transparent hypocrisy. I said, and you want my help, my professional services, maybe, to find that person? He smiled. 
and looked at me over his cigarette, and I laughed at his quiet exposure of my modest pretense. "'What a career such a man might have!' he said. "'It fills me with envy to think how I have accumulated that another man may spend. "'But there are conditions, of course, burdens to be imposed. "'He must, for instance, take my name. "'You cannot expect everything without some return, "'and I must go into all the circumstances of his life before I can accept him. "'He must be sound.' I must know his heredity, how his parents and grandparents died, have the strictest inquiries made into his private morals. This modified my secret congratulations a little. And do I understand, said I, that I... Yes, he said, almost fiercely. You. You. I answered never a word. My imagination was dancing wildly. My innate scepticism was useless to modify its transports. There was not a particle of gratitude in my mind. I did not know what to say, nor how to say it. But why me, in particular? I said at last. He had chanced to hear of me from Professor Haslar, he said, as a typically sound and sane young man, and he wished, as far as possible, to leave his money where health and integrity were assured. That was my first meeting with the little old man. He was mysterious about himself. He would not give his name yet, he said, and after I had answered some questions of his, he left me at the Blavitsky portal. I noticed that he drew a handful of gold coins from his pocket when it came to paying for the lunch. His insistence upon bodily health was curious. In accordance with an arrangement we had made, I applied that day for a life policy in the Loyal Insurance Company for a large sum, and I was exhaustively overhauled by the medical advisers of that company in the subsequent week. Even that did not satisfy him, and he insisted I must be re-examined by the great Dr. Henderson. It was Friday in Whitson week before he came to a decision. He called me down, quite late in the evening, nearly nine it was, from cramming chemical equations for my preliminary scientific examination. He was standing in the passage under the feeble gas lamp, and his face was a grotesque interplay of shadows. He seemed more bowed than when I had first seen him, and his cheeks had sunk in a little. His voice shook with emotion. "'Everything is satisfactory, Mr. Eden,' he said. "'Everything is quite, quite satisfactory. "'And this night of all nights you must dine with me "'and celebrate your accession.' "'He was interrupted by a cough. "'You won't have to wait long, either,' he said, "'wiping his handkerchief across his lips "'and gripping my hand with his long, bony claw that was disengaged. "'Certainly not very long to wait. "'We went into the street and called a cab.' I remember every incident of that drive vividly, the swift, easy motion, the vivid contrast of gas and oil and electric light, the crowds of people in the streets, the place in Regent Street to which we went, and the sumptuous dinner we were served with there. I was disconcerted at first by the well-dressed waiter's glances at my rough clothes, bothered by the stones of the olives, but as the champagne warmed my blood, my confidence revived. At first, the old man talked of himself. He had already told me his name in the cab. He was Egbert Elversham, the great philosopher, whose name I had known since I was a lad at school. It seemed incredible to me that this man, whose intelligence had so early dominated mine, this great abstraction, should suddenly realise itself as this decrepit, familiar figure. I dare say every young fellow who has suddenly fallen among celebrities has felt something of my disappointment. He told me now of the future that the feeble streams of his life would presently leave dry for me. Houses, copyrights, investments. I had never suspected that philosophers were so rich. He watched me drink and eat with a touch of envy. What a capacity for living you have, he said, and then with a sigh, 
A sigh of relief, I could have thought it. It will not be long. Aye, said I, my head swimming now with champagne. I have a future, perhaps, of a fairly agreeable sort, thanks to you. I shall now have the honour of your name. But you have a past, such a past as is worth all my future. He shook his head and smiled, as I thought, with half-sad appreciation of my flattering admiration. That future, he said, would you in truth change it? The waiter came with liqueurs. You will not, perhaps, mind taking my name, taking my position, but would you, indeed, willingly take my years? With your achievements, said I, gallantly. He smiled again. Cummel, both, he said to the waiter, and turned his attention to a little paper packet he had taken from his pocket. This hour, said he, this after-dinner hour, is the hour of small things. Here is a scrap of my unpublished wisdom. He opened the packet with his shaking yellow fingers and showed a little pinkish powder on the paper. This, said he, well, you must guess what it is, but Cummel, put but a dash of this powder in it, is Himmel. His large greyish eyes watched mine with an inscrutable expression. It was a bit of a shock to me to find this great teacher gave his mind to the flavour of liqueurs. However, I feigned an interest in his weakness, for I was drunk enough for such small sycophancy. He parted the powder between the little glasses, and rising suddenly with a strange, unexpected dignity, held out his hand towards me. I imitated his action, and the glasses rang. "'To a quick succession,' said he, and raised his glass towards his lips. "'Not that,' I said hastily. "'Not that.' He paused with the liqueur at the level of his chin, and his eyes blazing into mine. "'To a long life,' said I. He hesitated. "'To a long life,' said he, with a sudden bark of laughter, and with eyes fixed on one another we tilted the little glasses. His eyes looked straight into mine, and as I drained the stuff off I felt a curiously intense sensation. The first touch of it set my brain in a furious tumult. I seemed to feel an actual, physical stirring in my skull, and a seething humming filled my ears. I did not notice the flavour in my mouth, the aroma that filled my throat. I saw only the grey intensity of his gaze that burnt into mine. The draught, the mental confusion, the noise and stirring in my head seemed to last an interminable time. Curious, vague impressions of half-forgotten things danced and vanished on the edge of my consciousness. At last, he broke the spell. With a sudden, explosive sigh, he put down his glass. Well, he said, it's glorious, said I, though I had not tasted the stuff. My head was spinning. I sat down. My brain was chaos. Then my perception grew clear and minute, as though I saw things in a concave mirror. His manner seemed to have changed into something nervous and hasty. He pulled out his watch and grimaced at it. Eleven seven, and tonight I must... Seven twenty-five, Waterloo, I must go at once. He called for the bill and struggled with his coat. Officious waiters came to our assistance. In another moment I was wishing him goodbye over the apron of a cab, and still, with an absurd feeling of minute distinctness, as though... How can I express it? I not only saw, but felt through an inverted opera glass. That stuff, he said. He put his hand to his forehead. I ought not to have given it to you. It will make your head split tomorrow. Wait a minute. Here. He handed me out a little flat thing like a seedlitz powder. Take that in water as you are going to bed. The other thing was a drug. Not till you're ready to go to bed, mind. It will clear your head. That's all. One more shake. Futurus! I gripped his shriveled claw. Goodbye, he said, and by the droop of his eyelids, I judged he, too, was a little under the influence of that brain-twisting cordial. 
He recollected something else with a start, felt in his breast pocket, and produced another packet, this time a cylinder, the size and shape of a shaving stick. Here, said he, I'd almost forgotten. Don't open this until I come tomorrow, but take it now. It was so heavy that I well-nigh dropped it. All right, said I, and he grinned at me through the cab window as the cabman flicked his horse into wakefulness. It was a white packet he had given me, with red seals at either end and along its edge. If this isn't money, said I, it's platinum or lead. I stuck it with elaborate care into my pocket and with a whirling brain, walked home through the Regent Street loiterers and the dark back streets beyond Portland Road. I remember the sensations of that walk very vividly, strange as they were. I was still so far myself that I could notice my strange mental state and wonder whether this stuff I had had was opium, a drug beyond my experience. It is hard now to describe the peculiarity of my mental strangeness. Mental doubling vaguely expresses it. As I was walking up Regent Street, I found in my mind a queer persuasion that it was Waterloo Station, and had an odd impulse to get into the Polytechnic as a man might get into a train. I put a knuckle in my eye, and it was Regent Street. How can I express it? You see a skilful actor looking quietly at you. He pulls a grimace, and lo, another person. Is it too extravagant if I tell you that it seemed to me as if Regent Street had, for the moment, done that? Then, being persuaded it was Regent Street again, I was oddly muddled about some fantastic reminiscences that cropped up. Thirty years ago, thought I, it was here that I quarrelled with my brother. Then I burst out laughing, to the astonishment and encouragement of a group of night prowlers. Thirty years ago, I did not exist, and never in my life had I boasted a brother. The stuff was surely liquid folly, for the poignant regret for that lost brother still clung to me. Along Portland Road, the madness took another turn. I began to recall vanished shops, and to compare the street with what it used to be. Confused, troubled thinking is comprehensible enough after the drink I had taken. But what puzzled me were these curiously vivid phantasm memories that had crept into my mind, and not only the memories that had crept in, but also the memories that had slipped out. I stopped opposite Stevens, the natural history dealer, and cudgelled my brains to think what he had to do with me. A bus went by, and sounded exactly like the rumbling of a train. I seemed to be dipping into some dark, remote pit for the recollection. "'Of course,' said I, at last. "'He has promised me three frogs tomorrow. "'Odd I should have forgotten.' "'Do they still show children dissolving views? "'In those, I remember one view would begin like a faint ghost "'and grow and oust another. "'In just that way, it seemed to me that a ghostly set of new sensations "'was struggling with those of my ordinary self.' I went on, through Euston Road, to Tottenham Court Road, puzzled and a little frightened, and scarcely noticed the unusual way I was taking, for commonly I used to cut through the intervening network of back streets. I turned into University Street to discover that I had forgotten my number. Only by a strong effort did I recall 11A, and even then it seemed to me that it was a thing some forgotten person had told me. I tried to steady my mind by recalling the incidents of the dinner, and for the life of me I could conjure up no picture of my host's face. I saw him only as a shadowy outline, as one might see oneself, reflected in a window through which one was looking. In his place, however, I had a curious exterior vision of myself, sitting at a table, flushed, bright-eyed, and talkative. "'I must take this other powder,' said I. "'This is getting impossible.' I tried the wrong side of the hall for my candle and the matches, and had a doubt of which landing my room might be on. I'm drunk, I said, that's certain, and blundered needlessly on the staircase to sustain the proposition. At the first glance my room seemed unfamiliar. What rot, I said, and stared about me. 
I seemed to bring myself back by the effort, and the odd, phantasmal quality passed into the concrete familiar. There was the old looking-glass, with my notes on the album and stuck in the corner of the frame, my old, everyday suit of clothes pitched about the floor, and yet it was not so real, after all. I felt an idiotic persuasion trying to creep into my mind, as it were, that I was in a railway carriage, in a train, just stopping, that I was peering out of the window at some unknown station. I gripped the bed rail firmly to reassure myself. It's clairvoyance, perhaps, I said. I must write to the Psychical Research Society. I put the rouleau on my dressing table, sat on my bed, and began to take off my boots. It was as if the picture of my present sensations was painted over some other picture that was trying to show through. Curse it, said I. My wits are going, or am I in two places at once? Half undressed, I tossed the powder into a glass and drank it off. It effervesced and became a fluorescent amber colour. Before I was in bed, my mind was already tranquillised. I felt the pillow at my cheek, and thereupon I must have fallen asleep. I awoke abruptly, out of a dream of strange beasts, and found myself lying on my back. Probably everyone knows that dismal, emotional dream from which one escapes, awake indeed, but strangely cowed. There was a curious taste in my mouth, a tired feeling in my limbs, a sense of cutaneous discomfort. I lay with my head motionless on my pillow, expecting that my feeling of strangeness and terror would pass away, and that I should then doze off again to sleep. But instead of that, my uncanny sensations increased. At first I could perceive nothing wrong about me. There was a faint light in the room, so faint that it was the very next thing to darkness, and the furniture stood out in it as vague blots of absolute darkness. I stared with my eyes just over the bedclothes. It came into my mind that someone had entered the room to rob me of my rouleau of money, but, after lying for some moments, breathing regularly to simulate sleep, I realised this was mere fancy. Nevertheless, the uneasy assurance of something wrong f kept fast hold of me. With an effort, I raised my head from the pillow and peered about me at the dark. What it was, I could not conceive. I looked at the dim shapes around me, the greater and lesser darknesses that indicated curtains, table, fireplace, bookshelves, and so forth. Then I began to perceive something unfamiliar in the forms of the darkness. Had the bed turned around? Yonder should be the bookshelves, and something shrouded and pallid rose there, something that would not answer to the bookshelves, however I looked at it. It was far too big to be my shirt thrown on a chair. Overcoming a childish terror, I threw back the bedclothes and thrust my leg out of bed. Instead of coming out of my truckle bed upon the floor, I found my foot scarcely reached the edge of the mattress. I made another step, as it were, and sat up on the edge of the bed. By the side of my bed should be the candle, and the matches upon the broken chair. I put out my hand and touched nothing. I waved my hand in the darkness, and it came against some heavy hanging, soft and thick in texture, which gave a rustling noise at my touch. I grasped this and pulled it. It appeared to be a curtain suspended over the head of my bed. I was now thoroughly awake, and beginning to realise that I was in a strange room. I was puzzled. I tried to recall the overnight circumstances, and I found them now, curiously enough, vivid in my memory. The supper, my reception of the little packages, my wonder whether I was intoxicated, my slow undressing, the coolness to my flushed face and my pillow. I felt a sudden distrust. Was that last night, or the night before? At any rate, this room was strange to me, and I could not imagine how I had got into it. The dim, pallid outline was growing paler, and I perceived it was a window, with the dark shape of an oval toilet glass against the weak intimation of the dawn that filtered through the blind. I stood up and was surprised by a curious feeling of weakness and unsteadiness. With trembling hands outstretched, I walked slowly towards the window, getting 
Nevertheless, a bruise on the knee from a chair by the way. I fumbled round the glass, which was large, with handsome brass sconces to find the blind cord. I could not find any. By chance I took hold of the tassel, and with the click of a spring the blind ran up. I found myself looking out upon a scene that was altogether strange to me. The night was overcast, and through the flocculent grey of the heaped clouds there filtered a faint half-light of dawn. Just at the edge of the sky the cloud canopy had a blood-red rim. Below everything was dark and indistinct, dim hills in the distance, a vague mass of buildings running up into pinnacles, trees like spilt ink, and below the window a tracery of black bushes and pale grey paths. It was so unfamiliar that for the moment I thought myself still dreaming. I felt the toilet table. It appeared to be made of some polished wood, and was rather elaborately furnished. There were little cut glass bottles and a brush upon it. There was also a queer little object, horseshoe-shaped, of felt with smooth, hard projections, lying in a saucer. I could find no matches, nor a candlestick. I turned my eyes to the room again. Now the blind was up, faint spectres of its furnishing came out of the darkness. There was a huge, curtained bed, and the fireplace at its foot had a large white mantle with something of the shimmer of marble. I leant against the toilet table, shut my eyes, and opened them again, and tried to think. The whole thing was far too real for dreaming. I was inclined to imagine there was still some hiatus in my memory, as a consequence of my draught of that strange liqueur, that I had come into my inheritance, perhaps, and suddenly lost my recollection of everything since my good fortune had been announced. Perhaps if I waited a little, things would be clearer to me again. Yet my dinner with old Elvisham was now singularly vivid and recent. The champagne, the observant waiters, the powder, and the liqueurs. I could have staked my soul it all happened a few hours ago. And then occurred a thing so trivial, and yet so terrible to me, that I shiver now to think of that moment. I spoke aloud. I said, "'How the devil did I get here?' And the voice was not my own. It was not my own. It was thin. The articulation was slurred. The resonance of my facial bones was different. Then, to reassure myself, I ran one hand over the other, and felt loose folds of skin, the bony laxity of age. Surely, I said, in that horrible voice that had somehow established itself in my throat, surely this thing is a dream. Almost as quickly as if I did it involuntarily, I thrust my fingers into my mouth. My teeth had gone. My fingertips ran on the flaccid surface of an even row of shriveled gums. I was sick with dismay and disgust. I felt then a passionate desire to see myself, to realise at once in its full horror the ghastly changes that had come upon me. I tottered to the mantel, and felt along it for matches. As I did so, a barking cough sprang up in my throat, and I clutched the thick flannel nightdress I found about me. There were no matches there, and I suddenly realised that my extremities were cold. Sniffing and coughing, whimpering a little, perhaps, I fumbled back to bed. It is surely a dream, I whispered to myself as I clambered back. Surely a dream. It was a senile repetition. I pulled the bedclothes over my shoulders, over my ears, thrust my withered hand under the pillow, and determined to compose myself to sleep. Of course it was a dream. In the morning the dream would be over, and I would wake up strong and vigorous again to my youth and studies. I shut my eyes, breathed regularly, and, finding myself wakeful, began to count slowly through the powers of three. But the thing I desired would not come. I could not get to sleep, and the persuasion of the inexorable reality of the change that had happened to me grew steadily. Presently I found myself with my eyes wide open, the powers of three forgotten, and my skinny fingers upon my shriveled gums. 
I was, indeed, suddenly and abruptly an old man. I had, in some unaccountable manner, fallen through my life and come to old age. In some way I had been cheated of all the best of my life, of love, of struggle, of strength, and hope. I grovelled into the pillow and tried to persuade myself that such hallucination was possible. Imperceptibly, steadily, the dawn grew clearer. At last, despairing of further sleep, I sat up in bed and looked about me. A chill twilight rendered the whole chamber visible. It was spacious and well furnished, better furnished than any room I had ever slept in before. A candle and matches became dimly visible upon a little pedestal in a recess. I threw back the bedclothes, and, shivering with the rawness of the early morning, albeit it was summer-time, I got out and lit the candle. Then, trembling horribly so that the extinguisher rattled on its spike, I tottered to the glass and saw... Elvisham's face. It was none the less horrible because I had already dimly feared as much. He had already seemed physically weak and pitiful to me, but seen now, dressed only in a coarse flannel nightdress that fell apart and showed the stringy neck, seen now as my own body, I cannot describe its desolate decrepitude. The hollow cheeks, the straggling tail of dirty grey hair, the roomy bleared eyes, the quivering, shrivelled lips, the lower displaying a gleam of the pink interior lining and those horrible dark gums. You who are mind and body together at your natural years cannot imagine what this fiendish imprisonment meant to me. To be young and full of the desire and energy of youth, and to be caught and presently to be crushed in this tottering ruin of a body. But I wander from the course of my story. For some time I must have been stunned at this change that had come upon me. It was daylight when I did so far gather myself together as to think. In some inexplicable way I had been changed, though how short of magic the thing had been done, I could not say. And, as I thought, the diabolical ingenuity of Elvisham came home to me. It seemed plain to me that, as I found myself in his, so he must be in possession of my body, of my strength, that is, and my future. But how to prove it? Then, as I thought, the thing became so incredible, even to me, that my mind reeled, and I had to pinch myself to feel my toothless gums, to see myself in the glass and touch the things about me, before I could steady myself to face the facts again. Was all life hallucination? Was I indeed Elvisham and he me? Had I been dreaming of Eden overnight? Was there any Eden? But if I was Elvisham... I should remember where I was on the previous morning, the name of the town in which I lived, what happened before the dream began. I struggled with my thoughts. I recalled the queer doubleness of my memories overnight, but now my mind was clear. Not the ghost of any memories, but those proper to Eden, could I raise. "'This way lies insanity!' I cried in my piping voice. I staggered to my feet, dragged my feeble, heavy limbs to the wash-hand stand, and plunged my grey head into a basin of cold water. Then, toweling myself, I tried again. It was no good. I felt beyond all question that I was indeed Eden, not Elvisham, but Eden in Elvisham's body. Had I been a man of any other age, I might have given myself up to my fate as one enchanted. But in these sceptical days, miracles do not pass current. Here was some trick of psychology.' What a drug and a steady stare could do, a drug and a steady stare, or some similar treatment, could surely undo. Men have lost their memories before, but to exchange memories as one does umbrellas, I laughed. Alas, not a healthy laugh, but a wheezing, senile titter. I could have fancied old Elvisham laughing at my plight, and a gust of petulant anger, unusual to me, swept across my feelings. I began dressing eagerly in the clothes I found lying about on the floor, and only realised when I was dressed that it was an evening suit I had assumed. 
I opened the wardrobe and found some more ordinary clothes, a pair of plaid trousers, and an old-fashioned dressing gown. I put a venerable smoking cap on my venerable head, and, coughing a little from my exertions, tottered out upon the landing. It was then perhaps a quarter to six, and the blinds were closely drawn, and the house quite silent. The landing was a spacious one. A broad, richly carpeted staircase went down into the darkness of the hall below and before me. A door ajar showed me a writing desk, a revolving bookcase, the back of a study chair, and a fine array of bound books, shelf upon shelf. My study, I mumbled, and walked across the landing. Then at the sound of my voice a thought struck me, and I went back to the bedroom and put in the set of false teeth. They slipped in with the ease of old habit. That's better, said I, gnashing them, and so returned to the study. The drawers of the writing desk were locked. Its revolving top was also locked. I could see no indication of the keys, and there were none in the pockets of my trousers. I shuffled back at once to the bedroom, and went through the dress suit, and afterwards the pockets of all the garments I could find. I was very eager, and one might have imagined that burglars had been at work to see my room when I had done. Not only were there no keys to be found, but not a coin, nor a scrap of paper, save only the receipted bill of the overnight di dinner. A curious weariness asserted itself. I sat down and stared at the garments flung here and there, their pockets turned inside out. My first frenzy had already flickered out. Every moment I was beginning to realise the immense intelligence of the plans of my enemy, to see more and more clearly the hopelessness of my position. With an effort I rose and hurried, hobbling into the study again. On the staircase was a housemaid pulling up the blinds. She stared, I think, at the expression on my face. I shut the door of the study behind me, and, seizing a poker, began an attack upon the desk. That is how they found me. The cover of the desk was split, the lock smashed, the letters torn out of the pigeonholes and tossed about the room. In my senile rage I had flung about the pens and other such light stationery, and overturned the ink. Moreover, a large vase upon the mantel had got broken. I do not know how. I could find no cheque-book, no money, no indication of the slightest use for the recovery of my body. I was battering madly at the drawers when the butler, backed by two women servants, intruded upon me. That simply is the story of my change. No one will believe my frantic assertions. I am treated as one demented, and even at this moment I am under restraint. But I am sane, absolutely sane, and to prove it I have sat down to write the story minutely as the things happened to me. I appeal to the reader whether there is any trace of insanity in the style or method of the story he has been reading. I am a young man, locked away in an old man's body, but the clear fact is incredible to everyone. Naturally I appear demented to those who will not believe this. Naturally I do not know the names of my secretaries, of the doctors who come to see me, of my servants and neighbours, of this town, wherever it is where I find myself. Naturally I lose myself in my own house, and suffer inconveniences of every sort. Naturally I ask the oddest questions. Naturally I weep and cry out, and have paroxysms of despair. I have no money, and no cheque-book. The bank will not recognise my signature, for I suppose that, allowing for the feeble muscles I now have, my handwriting is still in's. These people about me will not let me go to the bank personally. It seems, indeed, that there is no bank in this town, and that I have an account in some part of London. It seems that Elvisham kept the name of his solicitor secret from all his household. I can ascertain nothing." Elvisham was, of course, a profound student of mental science, and all my declarations of the facts of the case merely confirm the theory that my insanity is the outcome of overmuch brooding upon psychology. Dreams of the personal identity, indeed. 
Two days ago I was a healthy youngster with all life before me. Now I am a furious old man, unkempt and desperate and miserable, prowling about a great, luxurious, strange house, watched, feared, and avoided as a lunatic by everyone about me. And in London there is Elvisham beginning life again in a vigorous body with, and with all the accumulated knowledge and wisdom of threescore and ten. He has stolen my life. What has happened I do not clearly know. In the study are volumes of manuscript notes referring chiefly to the psychology of memory and parts of what may be either calculations or ciphers in symbols absolutely strange to me. In some passages there are indications that he was also occupied with the philosophy of mathematics. I take it he has transferred the whole of his memories, the accumulation that makes up his personality from this old, withered brain of his. I take it he has transferred the whole of his memories, the accumulation that makes up his personality from this old, withered brain of his to mine, and similarly that he has transferred mine to his discarded tenement. Practically, that is, he has changed bodies, but how such a change may be possible is without the range of my philosophy. I have been a materialist for all my thinking life, but here, suddenly, is a clear case of man's detachability from matter. One desperate experiment I am about to try. I sit writing here before putting the matter to issue. This morning, with the help of a table-knife that I had secreted at breakfast, I succeeded in breaking open a fairly obvious secret drawer in this wrecked writing-desk. I discovered nothing save a little green glass vial containing a white powder. Round the neck of the vial was a label, and therefore was written this one word. Release. This may be, is most probably poison. I can understand Elvisham placing poison in my way, and I should be sure that it was his intention so to get rid of the only living witness against him were it not for this careful concealment. The man has practically solved the problem of immortality. Save for the spite of chance, he will live in my body until it has aged, and then, again throwing that aside, he will assume some other victim's youth and strength. When one remembers his heartlessness, it is terrible to think of the ever-growing experience that... How long has he been leaping from body to body? But I tire of writing. The powder appears to be soluble in water. The taste is not unpleasant. There, the narrative found upon Mr. Elvisham's desk ends. His dead body lay between the desk and the chair. The latter had been pushed back, probably by his last convulsions. The story was written in pencil, and in a crazy hand, quite unlike his usual, minute characters. There remain only two curious facts to record. Indisputably, there was some connection between Eden and Elvisham, since the whole of Elvisham's property was bequeathed to the young man. But he never inherited when Elvisham committed suicide, Eden was, strangely enough, already dead. Twenty-four hours before, he had been knocked down by a cab and killed instantly at the crowded crossing at the intersection of Gower Street and Euston Road, so that the only human being who could have thrown light upon this fantastic narrative is far beyond the reach of questions. And that was our story. Like so many of Wells's plots, this one, The Body Thief, has become a trope of its own. Lovecraft did it, Octavia Butler, Charlie Kaufman, hell, it's been a couple of Disney movies. It's usually presented the way it is here, a violation in which one party wins and one loses. Sometimes they both feel like they've lost. There's always a divide, if it's age or gender or race. Personally, I'm a bit more positive on this idea. 
If science ever makes body exchange possible, I am so all over it. The possible things you could experience blow my mind. But that's a different outro. Or perhaps I should resume that erotic SF novel I started. That's getting off the subject. What Wells wanted to play up here wasn't the body swap, it was the power exchange, the violation. The protagonist accepts a simple offer that seems like a good idea. Bad guy takes everything the protagonist has, everything he is. Too late, the protagonist realizes it, and it just isn't fair. He should have seen it coming, but he didn't. I think that's one of the cores of horror. It's not totally random. People bring their fates upon themselves, but the deck is stacked. The punishment far exceeds the error. This titillates us because we like it when bad things happen to other people, not us. But also, maybe, it confirms some of our deepest assumptions, the things we want to believe. The universe isn't random. There are creatures in the woods. And if something bad does happen to you, there is a cause. You still didn't deserve it. And what a segue to feedback on the story we ran on September 11th, Escape Pod 175, Reparations. This was Mary Haskell's time travel piece about aid workers going back to tend the wounded from Hiroshima. This got reactions. I'm not going to quote anyone by name this time. The story itself, people generally liked. Skillfully written, skillfully narrated. A few people said the power of it made them pull over on the road or stop in the grocery aisle to just listen and think. The forum thread went off for a really long time on the logic of the time loop. We got a lot of discussions about the title, Reparations, and whether it was appropriate for this story, which wasn't really about reparation in the political sense. Some folks were upset by the title alone. We had a long discussion in the blog comments about whether it was right to drop the bomb in Japan, whether it was a moral act, and whether reparation was called for. Most striking were the people, in the forum and the blog comments, who were offended, in some cases deeply angry, that I chose to run this story on 9-11. These critics felt the story was anti-American, or tried to evoke Western guilt in general, and that my choice to run it was linking a horrific terrorist act with a justified military action. Emotions ran really high on this. Even my choice not to say have fun at the end of the episode made a few people mad. I'm going to respond, because I think this is important. I did not express an opinion about whether the bombing of Hiroshima was good or bad, moral or immoral. If you push me, I'll tell you. I think it was justified and horrific at the same time. I don't want to tell you what to think. I don't believe the story expressed an opinion either. The story was about giving aid and comfort. There was no political agenda in the text, just people helping people. My agenda in the story choice and my closing notes was not political. I was not thinking about Western guilt or projected casualty counts from World War II. My thinking in comparing 9-11 and Hiroshima was not that they're morally equivalent. It was that a lot of people died and a lot of people suffered. Sometimes we get so caught up justifying history that we forget it's made of people who die, who suffer, and people who help them. 9-11 brings up a lot of emotion in me. What chokes me up every time I think of it are the firefighters, the rescue workers, who made a conscious choice to be there and who died doing their jobs, helping others. That sacrifice, I don't have a word for what it makes me feel. This story evoked that for me to a lesser degree. Volunteers going into a nuclear blast just to give a bit of pain relief to people who were beyond saving. 
Suffering and aid, sorrow and hope. That was my motivation for running it that day. I don't give a fuck about the politics. And if you want to be pissed at me for what I didn't say, knock yourself out. You can have your money back. Escape Hot is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. All other rights are reserved by our authors. If you like this week's story, please tell a friend or blog about us. And if you can, please consider donating via the PayPal link at our site, escapepod.org. Also check out our fantasy podcast, Podcastle, and I believe I mentioned Pseudopod, both at their .org domains. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from Babylon 5. One of my favorite quotes from the show was from the ranger, Marcus. He said, I used to think it was awful that life was so unfair. Then I thought, wouldn't it be much worse if life were fair and all the terrible things that happen to us come because we actually deserve them? So now I take great comfort in the general hostility and unfairness of the universe. We'll see you next week. Until then, be good to people and have fun. <laughs>